Hello, and welcome to my podcast, How Enslavement Was Justified in America During 1715 Until 1815. Um, So this episode is titled, Slavery Would Be Too Difficult to Abolish Due to Its Necessity to the Country. Now, before getting into the details, um, I must note that in the original introductory podcast, I did misspeak because I, I was a little bit low on sleep, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I had originally um, made the decision that I would have two podcasts. Um, this episode is now encompassing both of these, but the original idea was that I would have a podcast explaining the argument enslavement would be too difficult to abolish due to its necessity to the country's economy and then I would have another one that focused primarily on enlightenment thinkers and how you know their scholarship may have been manipulated and whatnot um, for the pro-slavery movement so originally these were going to be two separate things however I've simply decided that this is going to be one simple podcast so like I said at one point I was considering making these separate and I guess I've just in my mind forgot that I made that decision when I was making the introductory podcast and that's why I got a little bit confused um so I forgot that I changed my mind and you see if I were to stick to that um one of the episodes would have felt really lacking um and it just wouldn't have sounded good and additionally like the two podcasts may have sounded a little bit repetitive and overlapping so I made the decision to merge these two podcasts especially because it seemed appropriate because then I wanted to fit the theme of organizing each podcast based on the um, argument that was you know being made for pro-slavery um you know in early America so the two would just would have overlapped too much and so this is the only way that like now makes sense to me um so sorry about that but now that I've cleared that up we can dive right in um in this segment of this episode because I'm going to do this in probably a few segments because I feel like this is a little bit of a longer one um it's going to be in a couple segments probably Um, I'm just going to see what feels natural um, as far as breaking it up goes, but I know this segment is going to focus on John Locke, who was a prominent Enlightenment thinker during this time period, the Enlightenment period, so the earlier portion um, of my timeline that I will be discussing. Um, So in particular, we'll be discussing Locke's two treatises of government. Now, I was able to get this for free on on the Project Gutenberg ebook. Um, so you can find that online if you type in um, the Project Gutenberg. Um, it's a really great place to find all these different resources, especially a lot of primary sources. Super useful. Um, so that's kind of where I got mine. If you guys want to read it, just in case, I thought I'd throw that out there. Um, so anyway, um, so an important philosopher that many people look to in order to justify slavery was John Locke. So in early America, The Enlightenment era was crucial to those founding fathers we all know so well who created the structure that we have today. So one of John Locke's influential pieces, like I said, was the two treatises of government. Now, in the two treatises of government, chapter, um, I think it's chapter five. Hold on. I am very silly and for some reason I am not good at figuring out what Roman numerals are, and I really don't want to get this wrong. Um, okay. Okay, yes. So this is four. I get the numbers four and five 
messed up in Roman numerals all the time. Please forgive me. Um, so yeah, it's chapter four um, in John Locke's um, two treatises, tr two treatises of government. Now this is actually targeted to discuss the topic of slavery, which is really interesting. So in this document, Locke discusses the two different types of enslavement. So there are two different types he refers to. So these are referred to um, today when looking at his scholarship. He doesn't use the words legitimate and illegitimate enslavement. That's kind of a term we have come up with uh, today, like scholars in today's world have kind of come up with, because this is kind of a common thought, like this idea of legitimate and illegitimate exploit enslavement. I know I kind of briefly discussed that when I was talking about Aristotle. Um, this is something that I'm pretty sure it was kind of like, um, you know, defined in today's world, not necessarily um, in early America. So that's just for your information. John Locke did not use the words legitimate and illegitimate enslavement, but those are kind of our words for, um, you know, being able to pinpoint exactly what John Locke is talking about. So it's really more for the convenience of myself and the listener. Um, so anyway, as I was saying, so um, he refers to two different types of enslavement, legitimate and illegitimate enslavement. Uh, legitimate slavery is enslaving an individual for an unjust, um, immoral action, and more specifically, one who was an aggressor towards the laws of nature. So they were an aggressor towards the law of nature and now the law of nature will kind of be, um, you know, I guess, taken out on them um, and reversed on them in return. So it's a type of punishment. Now to John Locke, this was the only time enslavement is justified, but you see most enlightenment thinkers, like I think almost all of them believed even um, legitimate slavery was still wrong, um, but he believed, John Locke believed that this was totally justified. This was a means of justice for the act of aggression that was placed towards the party who is enslaving the individual. So it's kind of like payback, if you will. It's kind of like um, distributing karma on your own, which is interesting. Um, so then legitimate slave enslavement is moreover considered by Locke to be morally sound form of slavery. As for illegitimate slavery, illegitimate slavery, put simply, is when a person is enslaved for any other reason than previously mentioned. So in, in legitimate slavery, if that makes sense. So it was for, if it was for any reason other than what I just said, guess what? That's illegitimate slavery and it's wrong. So if I were to kind of compare this to how I was talking about um, Aristotle, Aristotle's is a little bit more um, nuanced in that way. Um, so basically, John Locke doesn't believe in slavery being natural at all. He doesn't believe in any kind of form of like natural slavery. That just wasn't really a thing to him. Um, it's either, you know, legitimate or illegitimate slavery one of the two and if it's not as a mean of justice for the act of aggression that was towards the party who is enslaving the individual then it's not okay if that makes sense I'm trying to make sure that is super clear um so if it was for any other reason then you know correcting a wrongdoing it's wrong and that's that very simply put however 
Um, Locke does get more specific with the definition of illegitimate slavery and defines it as when an absolute, and I'm quoting by the way, absolute and despotic ruler takes complete and total control over an individual for no justifiable reason. So in this case, it would be clear that Locke does not condone the African slave trade. However, people still continued to use his two treatises of government as a justification, as well as another one of his documents, which was um, published anonymously. Um, so anyway, the answer to the question, is this morally correct, was truly right in front of them. However, people chose to twist and bend the words of John Locke to validate themselves rather than take it for what it is. Um, so they took a scholar they liked and ignored the other parts to fit their argument. However, um, let me just, let me refer to my notes for a second. Um, so this source was one that was likely used to support the argument that slavery is justified because the economy would tank without it. So in John Locke's second treatise, he kind of, I mean, he kind of does this to himself. He kind of um, negates what he said just a little bit prior. Um, so this is really interesting. You can tell there's something that's kind of, um, I guess you could say, John Locke has something at war with himself. There's some kind of dissonance within him that he kind of explains in the second treatise. So it's the second treatise where he kind of goes back on what he said. So I suppose you could say this wasn't exactly cherry-picking evidence for the people who used John Locke to justify slavery. It was partly a, you know, a, um, I guess you could say, legitimate piece of evidence. Like, they weren't altering the evidence necessarily. I mean, I think that's pretty debatable, but I'm going to move past that for now. I'm going to digress. Um, so, like I said, um, the second treatise is kind of where this weird dissonance happens. So, um, this source was, in particular, the second treatise was probably the main one that was really looked at. It probably wasn't the one that I just described in the first treatise. They probably completely ignored it. It was in the second treatise that the support, that the argument that slavery is justified because the, the economy would take tank without it. So Locke basically goes on to explain that it is not realistic to undo this wrong that's been committed. It's just, it would be really hard. And that this would potentially be due to the fact, I think, and many scholars think, that it was because he was actually the author of the Fundamental Constitutions of the Carolinas in 1669. Um, so this gives perfect reason to assume that he knew how the new world functioned. I mean, he was involved in creating something that encouraged slavery and defined it in law. So um, this gives perfect reason to assume that he knew how the new world, America, functioned. And this understanding and this experience that he had here must have shaped his view on enslavement for the second treatise. So at this point in time, slavery had become so imperative to society in the new world that it cannot be undone at all, or at least not be undone instantaneously at the very least so he argues that society would really fall apart although he understands it's wrong in his first treatise 
he somewhat admits that this might not be realistic. Um, so of course, you know, this is kind of something that um, people at the time in early America would want to cling on to because, I mean, someone's telling them, hey, it might be wrong, but you know what? You're right. Um, it, you know what? Like, yeah, maybe we could do better, but you know what? That might not be realistic and you're not a bad person for continuing to engage in this because you can't help it. Your, the way your government has been structured, the way your society has been created is basically on slavery. So you can't change that. It's not your individual fault. You're kind of a victim yourself in this kind of government is almost how people would have taken it, right? So the two treatises of government is one that many people, including one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, used to justify slavery. So similarly to Locke, Jefferson too believed slavery was wrong, but somehow saw it as, I mean, these are my own words, as a necessary an necessary evil. Um, so he came to learn this later in life because uh, John Locke actually grew up in a society that relied heavily on slaves. So he kind of came to this understanding after discovering John Locke that like, you know, enslavement isn't, that's not good. These are people. And he kind of started to have this like awakening. And, you know, when you're reading through history and you, and you learn about um, the thought process that, you know, um, Thomas Jefferson went through, you're like, yes, yes, you're going to get it. And then he's just like, nope, it's necessary. And it's just so disappointing, I think, historically speaking, to look at that and be like, darn, like he was really close um, to, you know, getting it. And so this kind of is where I want to talk about and discuss the difference between being anti-slavery and abolitionist these two things were actually really different and of course like you know i actually thought they were the same thing at one point but after doing some research i realized they're very very different things so being anti-slavery um kind of meant that like you did not want slavery to continue necessarily so this meant that like you are totally morally against it but you understand that like it's not that easy and you know what we might never be able to abolish slavery and you feel that's realistic so that's kind of what anti-slavery means you don't like it you think it's not good you think it's not moral but you can't control it and you kind of feel powerless and I think this is something again that can you know be paralleled to today's world this idea of like well it's horrible but it's our country depends on it what can we do and you know I think that is part of where it's easy to kind of like sympathize with these people in the idea that they were like kind of hopeless like well this is kind of what we depend on and it's horrible but it's what we depend on like what else can we do and you know in a sense I mean it's still a horrible thing that they didn't want to fight for better of course it is it's a horrible disgusting thing that they didn't want to fight and you know, start some kind of revolution and start, you know, basically the civil war. Like, how did they not get to that? I don't know. However, it is also reasonable. Like, for example, when I think about fracking, you know, fracking in the United States is a problem right now that a lot of people want to do away with. However, like our country has relied very heavily on fracking. Um, so gas prices would go up if we got rid of fracking entirely, gas would get extremely, extremely expensive. Um, 
So a lot of people in turn are like, well, I know it's bad for the environment, but we can't get rid of it. And it's just, you know, you almost feel bad because it is that feeling of hopelessness. And I think that is the reality that like they weren't monsters. They were people of their time. And let's be real, like no matter how adult you are, you know, you, you don't really know what you're doing either. And I think that's a realization that I have come across um, in my adult life. It's like, you know, especially with the COVID-19 crisis that's been going on in the world, you know, you kind of realize that no one really knows the right answer. And I think that's the reality here. I mean, is it still horrible that these people really didn't stand up and say, hey, slavery is wrong? Is it still horrible that Thomas Jefferson knew slavery was wrong and still owned slaves? Yes, absolutely. I just really want to make that clear that that's not the kind of case I'm making here. The reality is if we don't accept that these people were people and realistically, they were not monsters, even though they did horrible things, they were not monsters. They were people because you know what, a hundred years from now, someone could look at us and say we were monsters for fracking and basically destroying our earth, right? So it's just kind of like a very full circle kind of moment because realistically, we're not monsters either. We're just people trying to figure it out. And you know what, we're going to do horrible things. And the reality is that people are capable of doing horrible things. And there are horrible things, horrible, disgusting things happening in today's world. So I'm sorry, I really did digress a little bit there, but that felt very necessary because you can really start to see this parallel of, you know, this argument that, well, we can't abolish it because it's necessary to the country's economy. And like, this is an argument you see so much within today. And this is something we have to work to get rid of. Um, because obviously this is something that was never okay. I mean, this was how they like justified slavery a lot of people who still believed it was wrong they still said well there's nothing we can do and we have to learn to move away from that thought we do and just look for justice and look for the morality of the situation we're in um so sorry for getting way off topic there but i really felt like that was an important thing to bring up um that of course like I said I'm going to talk about more heavily in my conclusion anyway getting back on topic um so let me just look back at my notes Alrighty, I am sorry about that unfortunately I got a phone call at the end of the previous segment for this episode um and it really messed things up for some reason when I do get a phone call um while I am recording it just stops recording so I can't even just like end the phone call and then continue talking. Unfortunately, it just completely stops me. Um, so I'm going to try to pick up where I left off. Again, I'm very sorry about that. So the two treatises of government by John Locke are significant as it impacted the structure and government of the United States heavily during its construction. They only contribute minimally to the argument of slavery would be too, abo- too difficult to abolish due to its necessity of the country's economy considering most most enlightenment philosophers did not condone slavery so this makes it um this makes uh john locke's point of view considerably the most pro-enslavement due to the fact that he actually justified one form of slavery 
it's actually pretty difficult to find an enlightened philosopher that condoned any kind of slavery. So this makes it clear that enlightenment thinkers were generally not a very big um, source for justification of slavery. So of course, during the enlightenment period when enlightenment philosophy was really big, um, you know, I think a lot of people at this time really did cling to John Locke's um, beliefs on enslavement. So um, this means that, you know, justification um, came from other much older sources, most justification anyway, it wasn't mostly that of the, the uh, enlightenment period. Uh, m most of the older sources uh, that strongly impacted the foundation of the Western world, like, you know, like I said, um, such as Aristotle, but of course, if I went through every single one of, you know, these scholars from a very long time ago that really impacted the Western world, it just, you know, it would take forever. Um, so that's why I only chose to talk about um, one Enlightenment philosopher and one person from, you know, a very, very long time ago, basically ancient history who, you know, um, really uh, impacted the foundation of the Western world. So that is why I've done things that way. Um, just a little explanation there. Um, but um, so then I kind of want to go back to Thomas Jefferson for a little bit, because he is especially an interesting character, because, you know, his idea that, you know, enslavement is wrong. Um, you know, it wasn't a common one um, to, you know, even to agree with John Locke. That still was not common. Um, and that's kind of where Thomas Jefferson stood. Like, he understood slavery was so disgustingly wrong, but he kind of described it as this. Well, he did describe it as this. This is a quote from Thomas Jefferson, and I quote, a wolf by the ear, or s maintaining slavery was like, quote, a wolf by the ear, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. So I guess what, end quote, sorry. Um, so I guess what Thomas Jefferson is kind of trying to say is that you can't have both. You can't safely get rid of slavery and you can't keep it. So he did actually, in a sense, in a sense, advocate for abolition. So you could say that because then he would go on because, um, you know, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So basically Jefferson feared by removing enslavement that this experiment, his new democracy would be ruined and like he'd never know if this form of government he was creating could actually work. So he kind of figures that as this country is developing, hopefully, hopefully they will find a way to, within their democracy, abolish enslavement. So, in and all of this that I'm talking about is actually coming from his personal um, autobiography and a lot of his letters to friends, family, um, other people in government, etc. So, there you have it. Um, so, he needed this government to work. He was depending on this to work in order to have slaves freed. Um, but, of course, you know, this is a little bit hypocritical considering he technically owned what I believe was his brother-in-law, who was half black, half white. Um, so this was his wife's half-brother that we're talking about that he owned, um, which is still so hypocritical. 
but I guess, you know, I suppose like at the time, you know, I mean, freeing a slave, what more would that do? It would just end up, he would just end up enslaved to someone else. So who knows? That could have been the thought process behind it. But as you can tell, I, I mean, as I was kind of reading through his autobiography, you can tell like there is a lot of like inner turmoil over this because he knows it's wrong even though he grew up with it which is like you know I do think it's commendable that he was able to come to this conclusion however he wasn't able to quite make it to the you know just straight up being like guys we need to abolish this you know um so he actually did kind of fight for abolition although I mean none of us consider this good enough on any level um, but in 1778, he actually drafted a Virginia law that prohibited the importation of enslaved Africans. So we could know, or the United States at the time could no longer import people from Africa as slaves any, any longer. That was completely done away with in Virginia. Then in 1784, he proposed an ordinance that would ban enslavement in the Northwest Territories, but the thing was, Jefferson always maintained that the decision to emancipate slaves would have to be part of the democratic process. He was kind of staying true to, you know, the democratic process that he really believed in. Um, so, like I said, that was something I kind of found within his autobiography, and I found that also through the many letters, one of them being to um, John Holmes. So. That is where I got that information from. Um, so it turns out he was actually very pro-abolition, but it was very hard at the time. And like I previously stated in my other segment um, of this episode, is that, you know, it, it was a very hard time to kind of, you know, be an abolitionist. Like at, in early America, it wasn't easy, um, especially because, you know, there was this new government that was being created it wasn't something that was easy and like I said um you know earlier and like this idea that like enslavement would be too difficult to abolish due to its necessity to the country and the country's economy you know it they all kind of understood that this wasn't something that could be done overnight as unfortunate as that is and I think that is so easily paralleled like that kind of justification is easily paralleled to many of the issues we have going on today like I said like fracking it's not something that we can do overnight um, and that's the argument that many people make I'm not saying I necessarily personally believe that but it doesn't appear to some people to be something that can be changed overnight so as horrible as it is it's just one of those things that is just really difficult and I think you know I'm not gonna um go on a tangent any longer I think you get the point um so I think I'm pretty much done with this podcast otherwise I'm going to keep going in circles and circles and circles um as previously mentioned my bibliography will be in the description for this podcast episode um thank you for listening and hopefully you'll be listening to my next podcast. So wherever you are, whether it's morning, afternoon, nighttime, have a great rest of your day.